Mark 3, I'm going to read verses 7 through 19. If you would stand as I read. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan. In the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. And to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. And James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges which means sons of thunder and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and James and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy upon us that we have heard your word read. We have your spirit present. We have seen demonstrated your grace in baptism. Lord, we have received grace upon grace, even this morning. Every ounce of it is of grace, and every ounce of any affection that would be found in us is of your grace. Any goodness that would be in us is because of your grace, because you are the one who justifies the ungodly. None of us comes to you godly or righteous, but we are made so by your work in us, and by your work in Christ. So Lord, we thank you for that gospel, for that good news, that you have rescued us, and that whoever may be here, whatever they may be dealing with, may they know that in Christ they have a friend if they would but turn to him and trust him and follow. Whatever baggage, whatever sin, whatever brokenness, would they know that you, Lord Jesus, are now extending your arms As you did at the cross, you extend your arms and say, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So, Lord, would we come? Would we hear? Would your spirit prepare us? Open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts. And, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away. But your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? In a miraculous moment, would your word and spirit meet? And would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. Let me be seated. It was said that George Whitfield, 
George Whitfield was a uh, famous preacher in the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening, the the good oh, Great Awakening. The, let's not get into that. But the First Great Awakening, and it was said he preached outdoors. He preached outdoors in England, and he also traveled here to America and preached outdoors. And he gathered, especially early on in his ministry. This is. Mid 1700s, early mid 1700s, he would. There were thousands of people would gather to hear George Whitfield pre- preach. It was said at some point that, uh, especially in those early years, that somewhere between twenty or thirty thousand people would gather in one spot to hear him. Now I don't know how you, uh, how sharp you are on the history of technology. But there was no amplification in, seven, in the 1730s and 40s. Uh, there was no microphones. There were no, there was, it was simply a man uh, usually elevated and he was preaching. I read an article uh, that in a, uh, an a, a acoustic scientist, a, a scientist who studied sound and things, uh, began to study George Whitfield and whether the numbers could possibly be accurate. Would it be possible in those spots, but because we have Whitfield's journals and things, would it be possible in those spots for a crowd that big to actually gather and to actually hear? Could the human voice in that topography with those hills and such, could it happen? And long story short, it could. That they, they discovered that George Whitfield's voice probably reached a decibel level of 90 decibels. But that was a level that was that's that professional opera singers and professional voice talent could reach. And that maybe in the in the 18th century, it was more common before we had amplification and things that people were trained and able. And so that in some of those places where you could fit 50 or 60,000 in that geographical plane, 20 or 30 could probably under good circumstances hear Whitfield. That's nuts. One, I'm, I don't anticipate reaching 90 decibels. I don't think it's in my uh, preaching arsenal. Uh, my voice will probably start to blow up. I don't need to, though, thankfully. God has given us amplification. Maybe I will. I'll shoot for it later on, see if you guys are waking up awake. But we have a thing about crowds, especially in America, especially in American evangelicalism, and as part of that's from the legacy of Whitfield. Whitfield was a contemporary of John Wesley. You maybe know that name better, who was the father of Methodism. Uh, Methodism of today, by and large, has uh, shifted in many of its convictions away from the theology of Wesley. But uh, Whitfield and Wesley, though they saw some important doctrines differently, they were friends. Uh, They started out together in England. But we have a thing for crowds. From Whitfield and then into the Second Great Awakening with men like uh, Charles Granderson Finney, who was a less savory character in my opinion, but that's another story. Uh, but that would, Billy Sunday, these, these revival meetings where you would have thousands of people, and it was a legacy that was inherited all the way down to Billy Graham and Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Crusades. At, at my house, I have uh, a Bible that was given to my grandfather. I've, I've shared it with the church before, but it was given to my grandfather uh, by Billy Graham. It has Billy Graham signed it? I don't know how I feel about it, but he signed the inside of it. Uh, and for my grandfather's health in a, in a crusade up in um, 
Kentucky, Ohio. There was a tri-state crusade. Uh, and we inherited this infatuation with crowds. And our point here this morning isn't necessarily just to say that crowds are bad. Um, but I want to kind of give some nuance to it. Because lest we fall into some traps that can happen by an infatuation with big groups of people. Because I think we're in a day and age that, one, there are fewer and fewer. And now God's grace and God's power, the spirit can blow and revival can explode whenever and however the sovereign Lord of the universe chooses. There is no power or principality, earthly or otherwise, that can halt or thwart the sovereign purposes of God. In regards to awakening and revival. So hear that kind of preamble. But if we are in love with crowds, if we're in love with large groups of people, and this is the, these are the, and, and this, and don't hear me, this is not, I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to have a big name. Um, but these are the guys that have big names. These are the guys who get invited to the pastors that get invited to conferences and have TV shows that they have large churches and they gather large groups of people. Um, some of them are sound, but many of them are not. And the thing I want you to see and then it shows up in our passage and it shows out up through the throughout the course of Jesus's ministry is that crowds Large groups of people present both opportunity and opposition and hindrance to Jesus. Great crowds present great opportunity, but they also present great opposition and they present great hindrance. And if you want to even go all the way to the end of Jesus's earthly life before his death and resurrection, it is a great crowd that screams out, crucify him. That crowds are not always good and beneficial. And crowds are not always an indicator. And in fact, they should not be a prime indicator of movements of God. Because they're not in the Bible. Now, obviously we have instances where crowds do gather and crowds are impacted. You have Pentecost where thousands of people are coming to believing upon the name of the Lord Jesus. In that early days of the church, thousands of people are added. So I'm not saying that's always bad. But what I am saying is that that is not a meat and potatoes, everyday evidence of the move of God. And I think as we, unless the Lord does bring awakening and he does bring revival, which we ought to labor and pray for and repent toward. It's another sermon. But unless the Lord does that, we are going to be heading into a season as Christians in the West where spiritual growth and vitality and the health of Jesus's church must not be measured by crowds, show, bigness, acclaim. But rather a small, intentional discipleship of the everyday Jesus withdraws after his confrontation at the beginning of chapter 3. It is a confrontation that, in a way, Jesus instigates. He, remember, he calls this man forward and he's confronting the Pharisees about their misunderstanding of the Sabbath, their misunderstanding of rest. And after this sort of conflict, he withdraws to the sea. It's almost as though he's, he's trying to get away, but he doesn't really get away. This happens often with Jesus. He's trying to get a little bit of space from everybody. 
A little bit of space from the conflict, a little bit of state, space from the controversy, and yet uh, the, the people always find him. You can see it in other places where he goes up on the mountain to pray and then they go find him. Everybody's looking for you. Where are you? It's like, I just, I just needed a minute. I needed to pray. Let me breathe. He goes to the sea in a great multitude. Now, this is a fascinating this is a summary passage, right? Mark is, is tying a few threads together for us here. So it, he's, he's, he, one thing that he's highlighting for us is that everything that's in the gospel of Mark is not everything that happens in Jesus's life. Everything you read in the gospel of Mark or of Matthew or of Luke or of John does not cover everything that happens in Jesus's life. It doesn't cover every sermon he preaches. It doesn't cover every conversation he has. It doesn't cover every healing, every, every uh, debate or controversy. It just doesn't do it. That's not their point. We are not dealing with modern historical biographers. They are taking the things of Jesus. They're packaging them to communicate the faith to particular groups and communities of people. Okay, so Mark is opening the door saying there's other things that happened and he sort of summarizes a lot of things in this passage. But he notes this great multitude or this great crowd that shows up. And you might if if you were just reading this at home, you might miss it of of the significance of what's happening here that you have um, from Galilee. Galilee is this sort of northern. If you were looking at Israel on a map today, Galilee would be. Uh, sort of the northern part of it, there would be this, I guess for you if you're looking at a map, but I don't want to confuse myself. So the Sea of Galilee, and then you have Galilee, right? Or you maybe have a a map in the back of your Bible. Those those serve a purpose other than when you're bored during sermon. Um, That that there's, there's Galilee up here, and then there's Samaria, and then there's Judea, and in Judea you have Jerusalem. Right, so you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. Okay, we get everybody tracking geography lesson, and I think it's helpful to think about geography because it helps us give a real life component to what we're reading. That this is really happening. He's beside the Sea of Galilee, and this group gathers from Galilee, but also from Judea. So they've traveled either through Samaria or they've gone around Samaria to arrive. They've heard about Jesus. His claim and a fame, and, is, and he's spent some time in Judea, but he's, is, there's people from Judea and from Jerusalem that have made the trek up to be near Jesus. And then also beyond the Jordan. So you have north, you have sort of middle, you have to the east beyond the Jordan. And then from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. So again, Galilee, say this is the sea, and this is, the, and this is Capernaum. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are over here. They're, they're northwest of here. And this is, these are Gentiles, predominantly. Galilee, predominantly Israelites or Jews. Judea, predominantly Jews. Jerusalem, obviously, predominantly Jews. Beyond the Jordan, it gets a little bit more mixed up, right? Jews and Gentiles. But Tyre and Sidon, these are different peoples. I mean, they're, I'm sure they're Jews that live there, but the 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 population demographics are shifting Gentile at that point. And they're all beginning to grab, they're they're gravitating that Jesus is in the real life geography of the ancient Near East, of ancient Israel. Jesus is the great 
gravitational pull that is drawing all of these people from all of these regions to a singular point, and it's on him. But it doesn't stop there. Tyre and Sidon, and I missed Idumea. Idumea would have been all the way back here behind the pulpit, right? Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea. Idumea was like 120 plus miles away, depending on where in that region they were traveling. That's a long way when you're either riding on something or you're walking, which probably many of these people walked. So they've been on the road for a while to arrive at Jesus. Jews and Gentiles arriving at Jesus. Now this sort of gravitational population shift would normally be reserved for Jerusalem during a feast. They would all come into Jerusalem for the Passover. They would all come into Jerusalem for the Festival of Weeks and for the Festival of Booths. All these people would gather, maybe not all of those Gentiles, but they would all gather to, to celebrate and remember, to do all the sort of worshipful, religious things they would do during the festivals. But now, it's not only happening at the temple, but it's happening at Jesus. On the person, on the man, Jesus, that he is the gravitational attraction. Right? Is it... He is the centripetal, right, not a centrifuge, so centrifugal, centripetal. Anybody can correct me, is that right or wrong? Y'all, do y'all even know? I don't know. I think of a centrifuge spinning, so centrifugal drives out. But Jesus is the centripetal force that is moving all of these people to himself. And what we get is a little bit of a forecast, a little bit of a forecast of what's happening with Jesus. One, that people are no longer going to be drawn to the Temple Mount. Primarily. That in just a few years, the Temple Mount's going to be smoke and rubble. But people will be drawn to Jesus. That all of these Old Testament signs and pictures are finding their yes and amen and culmination and fulfillment in Jesus. And it will be on the man of Christ that people are drawn. Not just from Tyre and Sidon and Jerusalem and Judea and Idumea and all these other places, but from every tribe and tongue and nation. So there's a sense in which, while we can't measure our growth by crowds today, we can have full confidence that God is creating, even now, church, even now He's creating a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation, gravitating to Jesus. People from all of the people groups of China and on the continent of Africa and Oceania and Europe and North America, are, there will be people, a great multitude there in Revelation chapter 7, gathered together, shouting out, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a forecast of what a small one is a little foreshadowing. I think placed there by the Holy Spirit. That God is creating a new people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But notice how this crowd interacts with Jesus. And this is, the, this is the point, I think. Whose agenda are they on? Whose agenda are they on? There's going to be a comparison. Like oh, This will be a middle school uh, essay in a moment, okay? Uh, you, there's a blue book. 
taped underneath the pew, and I'm going to expect you to write a compare and contrast essay here. Don't check. Some of you are like trying to... (laughs) That there's a comparison and a contrast between this crowd and the select group of disciples made apostles. All right? This crowd is there with Jesus on their own agenda. They're there for themselves. And he told his disciples uh, to make a crowd, take a boat so that he would, they, he would not be crowded by them. The word there, some other translations say that he would not be crushed. That the crowd is so, uh, so energized for what they want. You, know, you have those who, are, who, are, who need healing, those who need to be delivered. Jesus is about all of that. Don't get me wrong, but they're there for themselves. And their agenda begins to crowd into, if Jesus doesn't make preparations here, getting out on a boat, it would crowd and crush and hinder what he came to do. And if we're going to try to extrapolate that as an application today, when you come to Jesus and the work of his kingdom and the work of the church to further your own agenda, you might be hurting. No, no, no. You are hurting more than you're helping. Jesus, the kingdom, and the church do do not exist primarily to meet your needs. Now, all of your needs, needs will be met in Jesus. Jesus is the great physician. He will take one one way or another. He will take our sicknesses away. He does conquer the power of the adversary. But at some point, we as a people conquered by the grace of God will be released on his agenda. You understand what I'm saying? We will be brought in from death to life to live out life following Jesus. But too often Christians, they experience the grace of God. They're baptized. They believe upon Jesus. They come into the church. And then they act like the world because they are about their own agenda. This is the way I think it ought to be. This is what I like. These are my preferences. This This is me, 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 I, I, I. And what the church has done in America, by and large, is saying, well, we need to get big crowds. So let's give the people what they want. That's right. It's not a good thing. I love that sound, by the way. I love kids in here. Love hearing kids. But that's not a good thing. When all we are doing is saying, "Here's, here's what you think you need. What that does is it robs the church of her power and it robs us from the mission that God has called us to do. Because sometimes, many times, your greatest needs are not the things that you think they are. I mean, consider your children. If God is our father and we're his children, consider my kids. What do they think their greatest need is? This morning, what is Henry's greatest need? In his mind, his greatest need is not food, water, Whatever, it's Spider-Man on TV. Like, it has to be Spider-Man. And if I don't immediately give him Spider-Man, then the world has come off its axis. He did not sleep well last night. He's all off. Anyways. But that's just, I mean, but talk to any child. What they, what they say their greatest need is, we know is not their greatest need. And you as parents, you know, here is their greater need. 
No, you don't need to sleep all. You don't need to stay up all night. You actually have to go to sleep for your sake and ours and everybody else's. You have to go to sleep. In the same way, when we cater to crowds saying, here's all that you need. And it's simply we, we become the church becomes a, a dealer in religious goods and services as though we were some sort of renewed, even though malls are, are dinosaurs now and dying away. We were somehow a, a spiritual mall saying, here, there's something for you. There's something that's going to meet that's going to scratch an itch that you have. Well, guys, 21st century is revealed. There's way too many itches than we can scratch. And so at some point, the church has to say, I cannot be about your business. We have to be about our father's business. We're going to love God. We're going to love our neighbor. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to disciple people. We're going to baptize people. And we're going to send them out into the mission. And so they're about themselves. But Jesus still is awesome. And he's healing and he's casting out demons. He's demonstrating his authority even over the demons again. In verses 11 and 12 there. And then verse 13, you have this shift, a geographical shift. He goes from the sea to the mountain. He went up on the mountain and summoned. There is a a sovereign call of Lord Jesus here upon his disciples. He summons those whom he wanted. From amongst the crowd. Now, some of these guys have already been following Jesus. We've already seen his particular call upon them to come leave your nets, leave the tax booth, come follow me. But whereas there's the the crowd in verses 7 through 12 is totally anonymous. Here in 13 through 19, we have all 12 apostles named. And they are named to be with Jesus and then sent on Jesus's business. They're called, they're summoned to be with Jesus. And here is the essence of Christian discipleship. To be with Jesus and then to be about Jesus' business. Now, for them that meant he appointed the twelve so that they would be with them and that they would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Not all of you are called to do that. You're not preachers. Some of you may be. Maybe you're running from the call of God. You need to, anyway, that's another sermon. Surrender. It's best, I promise. But being about Jesus' business means that you are going to love God and love your neighbor where he has placed you. And sometimes when God calls you, he might be calling you to preach. He might be calling you to be an overseas missionary. He might be calling you to a, to a new work, a new entrepreneurial business to bless your community. I don't know what it is particularly, but I know to be a disciple of Jesus means that you're called to not only be with him, but to be about his work on an individual level. The crowd is there anonymously. They're there for their own agenda. The the apostles are there individually as a group to be with Jesus and to be about his work. So are you a disciple of Jesus? Not, 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 not. Are you a church member? Not have you grown up in the church? Not have, do you give your money that can be a part of discipleship? Do you know back in the day, I was listening to a guy talk, which you're doing right now. And 
And they, he talked about how the offering is, is, is intended, it was intended in, in other traditions and some other services, it was intended not only to be an offering of our money, but to be a consecration of ourselves. That there should be a component of our Christian worship where we're con- confessing our sin, we're saying how much we need what God does for us in Jesus, and we lay down our lives and say, my life is yours. That the offering is a natural outgrowth, a financial offering is a natural outgrowth of a whole person offering, of a consecrated life. And dear ones, when you come into Jesus, you've been bought with a price. You are not your own, the Apostle Paul says. Your life is consecrated by the blood of the Lamb to be His and to be for His glory and for His purposes in this world. So to be a disciple of Jesus, there, there, yes, there has to be a time where you take in the grace of God, where you sit in quiet prayer and meditation, you take in the word, you worship with the saints, but you must also obey Jesus. We just finished up 1 John in our reading plan. And how many times in there? If you, if you love, obey. Jesus says, if you, if you love me, in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you have experienced the love of God, in order to love God back, we love because he first loved us, remember? So we love in response to his love for us in Jesus. That love is lived out, not just with a Valentine's card addressed to Jesus, but it's lived out by real life, blood, guts, obedience. Spirit-empowered, not on your own obedience, but it's lived out in obedience. And so you look at these apostles. These disciples become apostles. They're, they're summoned by Jesus to follow him and to preach and to cast out demons. Do you know what happens to all these dudes? Save one. I'll give you the, the minus one. Do they live long lives into retirement and die happy and fat in their beds? No. They die. They're martyred. They're murdered. The Apostle John gets off, right? Gets off with a light sentence, so to speak. They just try to boil him, but he doesn't die, so they send him into exile. And so then he writes, could you imagine some, some 90-year-old writing Revelation? That would just be a, which we have, exactly that. I'm not saying that you're going to have to be a martyr, but I'm not saying that you won't either. To follow Jesus means that you're about his business. You can't just come to him on your own agenda. You come to him surrendering to his agenda. That's the, that's the confession of the, of the people of God. Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, there is no other Lord. I am not Lord My pastor's not Lord. My deacons aren't Lords. The state is not Lord. The president is not Lord. The FBI is not Lord. There's only one Lord. And he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That means there's delegated authority, all that stuff under it. But if Jesus is Lord, that's our fundamental base level at the root commitment. If we belong to him, then we belong to his work we belong to him we belong to his work and if we belong to his work then we must be about one making sure that other people hear about him two 
making sure that we love Him, that we're striving to love Him as grace enables us with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that all of our lives will be consecrated, made holy in love to Jesus. And that we're loving our neighbors as ourselves, that we're living holy lives, honest, telling the truth, dealing upright in our finances, dealing upright with our property, dealing legally and upright with our contracts and whatever else you might be into, that we're living our lives, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Headlining that is making sure our neighbors hear about Jesus, but there's a whole other thing under there too. So either we come on our agenda or we come surrendering to Jesus's agenda, his kingdom plan. And his kingdom plan involves the end of the book. It involves every tribe and tongue and nation. It involves a new heavens and a new earth, a place where there's no more sorrow or sickness or death. So one of the ways that we might tap into what Jesus's agenda is for us individually and as a church is saying, where in our spheres of influence, where in our community is the kingdom of God not manifested? Or another way to kind of make it, make it a negative or make it, turn it around. Uh, if the kingdom of God is coming today as it is in heaven, what would be different? What would be different in our community? What would be different in your marriage? What would be different with your children? What would be different in our church? What would be, what would be different in the way that we vote, in the way that we engage in our local politics? What would be different about the way that we engage with missions around the world if the kingdom of God were to come today as it is in heaven? Because that's precisely what Jesus told us to pray. And as we pray that, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is moving us onto his kingdom agenda. So that's the prayer. And that's the question. Do you belong to Jesus? And if you belong to Jesus by his grace through faith, are you living out his agenda and his kingdom plan of love God and love your neighbor? If not, repent. Say, Lord, forgive me for pursuing my own ends. Forgive me for pursuing my own glory, my own agenda. Help me see the bankruptcy of all of that so that I might trust you and follow you on your way. If you've never trusted Jesus, you've never heard that summons that he would, that you would be with him. You would be in a relationship with him, that you would have your sins removed, your debts forgiven, that you would be made new. Would you come to him today for new life? You who are far from God. And would you begin to pray earnestly and repeatedly with persistence. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my heart. Your will be done in my home. Your will be done in my church. Your will be done in my community. Your will be done in my state. Your will be done in my country. Your will be done on your world. Let's pray. God, we thank you. That though we are called apart uh, to be a part of your family, to be a part of a community, that you call us as individuals. You save us as individuals. You summon us to be with you, knowing our name and calling our name. And also that we might be about your work. I pray, God, that you would make that 
razor clear to our hearts and our minds this morning that we would know, I have to go do this. I have to go talk to this person. I have to go make this contract right. I need to go start that business or I need to pursue this different path. I need to reconcile with this person that there's unforgiveness, that I need to go and lead my family differently as a father and as a man, as a husband. I need to labor differently as a wife and a mother. I need to live differently as children that you would make it so clear how it is that we have deviated from your agenda that we might by your grace come back. But Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us and that your kindness toward us is meant to bring us to repentance. That right now, while there's a a swirl of things happening in our heads and our hearts, we might be convicted of coming to you on our own agenda and even trying to leverage you to do what we want to accomplish our goals and our ends. And we might be rightly convicted. In that conviction, would you rend our hearts, O Lord? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Would you help us to be a people humbled? Humbled as we receive the grace of flowing from Calvary that our sins are no more and as we receive the strength of your spirit to go forth from this place as your people scattered that your kingdom would come in our lives and through your power in our lives so Lord help us to be kingdom people called by as an individual given an individual assignment Help us to live it out for your name. Whatever the days might bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.